I want to open up this passage a little bit this morning. Obviously, we're not going to look verse by verse into the depths of it because it will take us, would take us a considerable amount of time. Um, but again, just really as I've been reading, I'm trying to go chronologically through, through Scripture this year. And it, this was one of these passages that as I read, I was just constantly starting to highlight, going, my goodness, what truth we find in here context a little bit. I'll try and keep this bit quite quick, but we come to the end of Genesis and we have Joseph, the, the, the ruler of Egypt, given Egypt by Pharaoh. We know Joseph, Joseph and his technicolor dream coat and uh, his brothers that he blesses, everything else, a great God-honoring, God-fearing man. And things are good. Things look good for the land of Egypt. We then jump forward 64 years from the death, uh, from the death of Joseph to the life of Moses, and we see a very, very different picture. In Exodus chapter 1, we read that a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. We see this change from, from, from the grace that was shown of Joseph to the, to the love that was shown to people. Rather, this king said, the Israelites have become far too many. We must deal with them shrewdly or they will keep on going. They will join our enemies and attack us. So the fear of the Israelites meant that they started to oppress them. And actually what happened is it got worse and worse and worse over time. And it just turned into this utterly miserable existence for the Israelites. But they continued to grow in number. But as they grew in number, the resentment of the Egyptians grew and grew. It was this vicious, vicious cycle. And in the mix, Moses, God sends Moses in Exodus 3, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. That incredible experience that he has with this burning bush. And what we see in the following chapters is God using miraculous things and signs to say, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh takes no notice. And it takes until the end of the last plague the death of his son, for Pharaoh to change his mind. Exodus 12.37 tells us there were 600,000 men in this exodus. Logically, a similar number of women and children were looking at 2 million people walking free from slavery. In the exact time frame that God said to Abraham that they would have their land. But we know that Pharaoh changed his mind. Pharaoh sent his, his troops, God opened the sea, the people walked through, and the waves and the sea came crashing down on the enemy. And that's where we find this song. We find this song as their response and their worship to God. And I guess there's a quote that's resonated with me from an actor there's some of you know a guy called Zach Braff, and he says this, there are almost 5,000 gods being worshipped by humanity, but don't worry, because only yours is right. Sarcasm from an atheist. But actually, this passage, I think, lays out for us, in the couple of verses we're going to look at, the characteristics of God that we can use as our criteria to go, who is God? And how many of them are there? So our focus this morning is going to be predominantly in verse 15. We see that, that God's victory is announced in the beginning of this. We see the weapons that God uses in verses 6 to 10. Then in verses 11 to 16, we see the character of God being 
exalted. And I just want to take a bit of time and break down verse 15. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And then we're just going to finish with verse 18. The Lord reigns forever and ever. So let us look first at this question. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? We see these amazing encounters in in chapter 7 here between Moses, his brother Aaron, and the wise men and the sorcerers. We see these encounters where Pharaoh tells them to perform something, to do some kind of sign. So Aaron threw his staff to the floor and it became a snake. Wow, surely this is proof of God. Surely this is enough to show us that God is good, that God can do things that no one else can. But then we read that Pharaoh summons the wise men and the sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Then again in chapter 7, the first plague, the plague of blood. Aaron stretched out his staff over the waters and they turned to blood. Flowing water turned to blood. The fish will die, it will stink, there will be no water for the people. Surely this then is proof of our God that there is only one God. But again we read the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Who is like our God? Well, does this mean that there is other gods? Does this mean that there is some other kind of being that can perform these things, these signs before the people? Well, we know for a fact that because there is a God, there is the enemy. The evil one has power to do many things. And you know, the gods of Egypt were very real to their people. There was more than 2,000 gods in ancient Egypt. The God for absolutely everything. And Ra was the most important of all of those. He was the lord of all the gods. Usually you'll see his picture of human body and the head of a falcon. And you know, Pharaoh must have been delighted when his sorcerers came along and seemingly worked at the same level as God. Surely of these 2,000 gods of Egypt, surely of the 5,000 gods that are worshipped today, some must be like our God. Surely this God, rather most important and powerful of all the gods of Egypt, surely he is like our God. Surely these signs are true. But you know, for us to begin to answer this question, we must look at what is the standard, what is the criteria of our God? Who will match our God? Do you know, it's worth saying there is such a ridiculous gulf between what can be performed in these dark arts and what God can do. Only God is the God of the miraculous. Satan himself was a created being with limited power. Of course, there is power there, but there is such a huge difference between the power of Satan and the power of God. Only God is infinite in his power. And Satan is finite and limited. Only God can create life. Satan can. Only God can raise the dead. No other can. Satan has power to deceive people. 
even to possess people. He is a great magician and a super scientist. He has a great knowledge of God and man and the universe. But that's it. True miracles can only be performed by God. The supernatural can only be performed by God. John tells us in 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Our God is greater than anything else we can see in this world. Do you know what I love about this chapter? Just the beginning words. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I'd love to, I'm not entirely sure how you get two million people to sing this song, but you just imagine this group of people that are so in awe of God and what he has done that they begin to sing. The Israelites were surrounded by these gods for 400 years. Surrounded by these other things that were not their God. So let us look then at the criteria we find here of the character of our God. Who is like you? Who is majestic in holiness? Who is awesome in glory? And who is working wonders? If you want your God to stand up to our God, this is the criteria. Are they holy? Are they awesome in glory? Are they working wonders? And all of a sudden, all 2,000 of these Egyptian gods begin to pale into utter insignificance. And they begin to be seen for what they are. A guise of the evil one to deceive people and pull them away from the true God. Let's look at each of these phrases. Firstly, who is majestic? In holiness, we know that we cannot ever fully comprehend the holiness of God. Our comprehension is so limited and so small. This side of eternity, we will never fully understand what it means fully that our God is holy. But to be majestic means to be significant in beauty and scale. Essentially, majestic means to be really, really big. To be awesome, to be glorious. The beauty and the scale of God, we can never fully understand. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. In God's case, it means to be set above, to be set above all things, all other gods, all other man, all other creation. So what are the Israelites singing here to God? They are singing, God, you know what? You are supreme. You are bigger. You are better. You are greater than all things. You are set apart. You are holy. And you are so, so good. How could you not open up in this worship when the seas have split before you, when two million people have been led out of slavery? That is the majesty of our God displayed on a scale that we cannot comprehend. And I wonder as we sit here this morning, do we know that it is that same majestic and holy God who kept his promises to his people, who delivered his people from their enemy, that that is the same God that loves you and that cares for you today in Christ Jesus? Do we worship God as one who is majestic in holiness? 
Because if we understood something of that, surely our whole hearts would be devoted to him. Does the very core of our being know that this is the God that we serve? Who of Egypt's 2,000 gods are majestic in holiness? Not one. Not one. And we come to this most glorious scene in Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come day and night. They never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who is like our God? Who can save the souls of sinners? Who can give eternal life? Who paid the ultimate price and sacrificed themselves so that mankind may know God, not through our own works, but through the works of God himself? Who is like that God? Not one. There is only one who is majestic in holiness. There is only one who is worthy of our praise. There is only one who reigns on high above all things. And that is our God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the God who rescued his people, Israel. This is the same God that offers us salvation through Christ, Jesus. There is not one whose holiness and majesty and perfection hits the standard of God but his own. Do you know, we know that if God was to appear before us in all his holiness, instantly we would be unconscious. We would not be able to take it. We may even disintegrate. We would just, there is not a chance we would be able to stand before the holiness of God. That is why when we see God, we need a glorified body. Because it's the only way that we can stand and bow before him. And you know, it's interesting because the church has always been strongest when it has its highest regard for the holiness of God. The church has been strongest when it stands and says, we are going to put God in his rightful place. God is above all and God knows all. And the church is at its weakest when the church loses this sense. We go from this kind of vertical holiness of I am here and God is up there. Not literally because God is with us, but God is so much greater than I. And then we go to this kind of horizontal, God is on my level. He just wants a relationship with me and he's wonderful. That's when we see the church at its weakest because it diminishes who God is. Who is awesome in glory? <coughs> this is what I'm guilty of. Overusing the word awesome for things that frankly are not awesome. For something to be awesome, it is something that is extremely impressive. It is something that inspires awe. It makes us go, wow. And I'm not sure there's any greater example by Christ of this awesome glory displayed as the Israelites walking through the sea that has been split. They have seen the magnificence of God displayed before them. We have the benefit of being New Testament people. We have the benefit of seeing the greatest example of the God who is awesome in glory. We see the God that sends his son into the sin-filled earth because he loves us so much, because our sinfulness grieves him so much, it hurts him so much to see us rebel 
and live apart from him, that his son came to die for all those who believe, so that we may know God, and so that we may have relationship with God. Do we live lives that honor the holy God that is awesome in glory? I love that there's no half measures with God. God isn't a spoonful of holiness or a pinch of majesty, a little bit glorious. But God is completely and entirely these things. Supremely, ultimately, totally, comprehensively, Jesus, God is absolutely these things. And the challenge for us then, if we don't worship a God of half measures, We cannot be people who devote ourselves to God in half measures. It's not good enough. We can't be people who are just wading through our sinfulness day by day. Yet still confessing Christ as our Lord and Savior if we are not turning to him in our sinfulness. Why? Because we are called to be different. What is our response to the holiness and the glory of God? First Peter, be holy as I am holy. Of course we will never get there. Of course we will never be people that are completely sin-free and holy. But this must be the desire of our hearts. Be holy. Follow him. Conform to him. Because there is nothing greater. So, who is awesome in glory? Not one, but our God. Not one is truly awesome. No one is truly glorious, but God. And finally, we see who works wonders. God. Who has the ability to save nations? Who has the ability to transform hearts, who has the ability to raise the dead, who has the ability to control nature, one. There is one, and that is our God. Do you know, the the nation of Israel, as they walked, as this news spread throughout the land, it would bring fear to the hearts of their enemies. As they sent their spies into Jericho, the people were paralyzed with fear. Of course they were. Who could escape from the most powerful dynasty? How could so many people come from slavery? Who could split a sea that they might walk through but our God? These unbelieving nations, these people knew that there is a true and living God and that he was more powerful, is more powerful than theirs. We can attempt to create as many things, as many idols, as much as we want and try and put it on our place with God, but nothing will stand next to our God. Again, as New Testament people, We have the glory of Jesus, the man that came, the God that came, that gave 
sight to the blind, that made the paralyzed walk, that brought the dead to life, the deaf to hear, the leper cleanse, the demon-possessed man gone. But what is the greatest of every miracle that Christ came and did? And Jesus in his conversation with Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. God did all sorts of amazing signs and wonders before the exodus. God demonstrated his might time and time again in the plagues. But what was the most amazing? The salvation of his people. That is the most amazing miracle that we see in Exodus. What is the most amazing thing that Christ came to do? To come to seek and to save the lost. Today our God is as active as ever. He is working out his plans in this world. Our God through his spirit is at work in each one of us who believes. And two, what is the greatest miracle we see today? It is the salvation of souls. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. I wonder this morning if you know Jesus. I wonder if you're struggling to find meaning and purpose in your life. I wonder if you're wrestling with the question, is there more to life than everything that is just in front of me? Am I born up? Do I die? Is that it? I urge you to consider the message of Jesus Christ. A message that we see here in Exodus of a God that loves his people so dearly that he offers them a way as God offers us a way. All it takes for us is faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus and living lives that seek to honor him. And I just want to finish with verse 18. Those simple words, the Lord reigns forever and ever. It's great as we read this, it feels like those words were just put in there for us. That in amongst all of this, it's saying, this is amazing, this is glorious what is happening, but actually this is the same God that still reigns today. Don't forget it. The same God that brought these two million people through the sea that he parted is the same God that cares enough about us, that wants a relationship with us, that offers us a way out of our sinfulness. God reigns forever and ever. Do you know, Moses' obedience in all of this was was breathtaking. I think Moses' obedience to God was full of challenges and hardships. What he had to deal with with his people was so hard. And truly, he didn't see the good times, did he? He never made it to what was ahead. But you know, the Israelites had been through the worst of the worst. They had been tried and tested for generations. They were abused and they were hurt for hundreds of years but God was faithful to his promise God delivered and God saved his people and what was their response to him worship and adoration is that our response to God is that our response to the God that saves us do we just come before him and go God you are glorious and you are worthy 
of my praise. Do you know, every other religious structure that exists says work hard and you might be good enough. Try and you might be able to please this God that stands with his arms folded somewhere in the... Somewhere. Try and be a good person and if you're lucky, you won't be condemned. But that's not our God. Because our God says, come to me as you are. Lay everything before me. Put your faith in me. Walk with me. Follow me. And you will know eternal life. You know, the saddest thing that mars this whole song is 17 chapters later, we find the building of this golden calf. As Moses is away up this mountain spending time with the Lord. The people declare in Exodus 32, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I find that really difficult to understand. I find, well, actually, I don't. But it, God has just shown his hand in an unbelievable way. They've seen the miraculous works of God before their eyes. But so soon they're turning their backs on him for what they want. Reminds me of Jesus and his triumphant entry and then his betrayal by the people just a week later. Yes, let's celebrate God, but something else has caught our eye, so we'll worry about him later. My prayer is that we're never those people. My prayer is that we're never the people that lose sight of God, lose sight of what he has done, lose sight of what he continues to do and the way that he is at work and has been at work in each of our lives. May we never lose sight of that God that is majestic in holiness, who is awesome in glory, and who is working in wonder. This is the God that knows and loves each one of us, and nothing will ever compare to him. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonder. There is not one, there is not one but him. Let's pray. Our God, we can't help but bow before your magnificence. We can't help but bow before your glory and your holiness and admit that we are not worthy. We are not worthy of the love that you show us. We are not worthy of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. But that is the beauty of you. The beauty of your gospel that we are not worthy but you have made us worthy. Not through anything of ourselves but through your work because you so love this world. God, we bow before you, worshiping your awesomeness, worshiping your holiness and your glory and your goodness to us. Amen.